Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Jualani Tulo, Tabiso Lohoko, and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, concerns over recent terror attacks against peacekeepers in Mali, and Turkey's President Recep Erdogan kicks off his state visit to Kenya. In economics, Lesotho expresses concerns over South Africa's low economic growth, and in sports news, South African athletes fly the flag high in Rome. First up, the news with Rolani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. A terror attack carried out by militants in the Somali capital of Mogadishu has been described as a despicable act by the UN Special Envoy for the country. At least 15 people were killed and dozens were injured when a suicide bomber detonated a car bomb in front of a popular hotel while militants stormed the premises. Two parliamentarians are among the dead as well as other prominent individuals. Jocelyn Simbera reports. Killing civilians is an act of desperation, political instability, and moral bankruptcy, Michael Keating, the special representative for the Secretary General in Somalia, said. In a statement released on Thursday, he said that the militants may have intended the attack to be a show of strength, but that its effect is the opposite. Al-Shabaab militants have claimed responsibility for the attack. The attackers exchanged fire with hotel security guards and Somali security forces until the situation was brought under control on Thursday morning. The incident occurred only days before the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. The United Nations peacekeeping mission in Mali is seeking more troops, equipment, armor and aerial civilians in the wake of deadly attacks by Islamic militants. Mission head Mohamed Saleh Anadif said he hoped the request would be considered at a UN Security Council meeting this month to renew the mission's mandate. He said the recent militant attacks have killed at least seven Guineans, five Chadians, five Tongalese and a Chinese peacekeeper with the mission. He said the latest deadly attack was the first in the northern city of Gao for the first time since 2013 when French forces drove militants from the region. Al-Qaeda has since reclaimed responsibility for the attack. South Africa's chief electoral officer, Musutu Muepa, has certified the voters' roll, which contains the names of over 26 million eligible voters who can participate in the municipal elections on August 3rd. Gauteng province has the highest number of voters with 6.2 million certified voters, followed by KZN with 5.4 million, the Eastern Cape province with 3.3 million and the Western Cape with 3 million. Approximately 69% of all voters are located in these 
these four provinces. The, this came as Thursday's deadline passed for parties to submit candidate lists for the municipal elections. IEC spokesperson Kate Babela says the increase in the number of voters is pleasing. The Electoral Commission has certified the voters' role for the 2016 municipal elections with a whooping 26.3 million voters which are eligible to vote in these elections. And what is pleasing uh, for these municipal elections is that for an increase of 2.6 million, which accounts to about 11.3%, which is an increase from the previous 2011 municipal elections. And also what is noteworthy on these uh, figures is that We've got approximately 55% uh, of voters being women with men following in with, with 45%. Zimbabwe is lobbying its neighbours to speak with one voice to retain the right to trade in ivory and high-value animal hides ahead of the CITES meeting in Cape Town starting in September. CITES is an agreement between 182 governments aiming to ensure that the, nation, the international trade in animals and plants doesn't threaten their survival. Lobbying for powerful nations ahead of the convention could see a trade ban on all elephant and lion products. Zimpark's Director General Edson Chidzia has called for southern African countries to resist such a ban. The the 10-year moratorium which was imposed on us not to sell will be able to, uh, to, to, to be relaxed. Then we use that same money for our conservation programs and also empowering our own communities. They must see a value. And finally, a Malawi court has banned witch doctors from operating in the country following a spate of albino killings linked to witchcraft. Judge Dingiswayo Madise granted an order late on Wednesday stopping all traditional healers, witch doctors, charm producers, magic users and fortune tellers from operating in the country to eliminate issues of albino attacks and killings. Albinos who have white skin and yellow hair as a result of a genetic disorder are regularly killed in several African countries for their body parts for the use in witchcraft. Malian police have recorded at least 65 attacks, abductions and murders of albinos since the end of 2014. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Jolani. It's 806 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. The UN Secretary General has expressed outrage at the latest terror attacks, carried out against peacekeepers in Mali. One peacekeeper from China was killed and a dozen UN personnel injured when an improvised explosive device was detonated at a UN multidimensional integrated stabilization mission, MINUSMA, camp in Gao in the country's southeast. In a separate incident, one civilian contractor from France and two security guards from Mali were killed 
when the camp of a UN contractor was attacked by unknown assailants. Ban Ki-moon has subsequently asked the Security Council to add just over 2,500 peacekeepers to the UN peacekeeping mission in Mali. For more on this, Paul Meli, Associate Fellow in the Africa Programme at the Chatham House Think Tank in the UK, says the additional troops will make a difference in helping with the security situation in Mali. I think they could be very useful because the challenge that the peacekeepers face is that the peace agreement in northern Mali is between armed groups that are not jihadists. That's to say the groups that were fighting for autonomy or independence for northern Mali. And it's between them and the government and pro-government local militias. Now, the peace force, MINUSMA, the mission has to try and work to build a spirit of confidence and stability in the north of Mali and help these different players to engage actively in the peace process, for example, through the creation of um, regional councils, which are likely to include a number of senior figures from some of these armed groups. But at the same time, there are jihadist groups which remain active and which are not party to the peace agreement, that have not been involved in the negotiations and do not have a political agenda. And they are engaged in a sustained campaign against MINUSMA, against the peacekeeping force, simply because it is seen as representative of international interests, of the Malian state, of efforts to restore peace and order, and in some ways also perceived as having the backing of the West. And so the United Nations force has this very difficult task. On the one side, it's trying to rebuild stability, intercommunal trust, uh, law and order among the different community elements and the armed groups and the Malian government and the Malian military to create peace, order and development in northern Mali. Now, 2,000 doesn't sound a very large number, but to just put that in a bit of context, the French force, which is deployed right across the Sahel in West Africa, across a number of countries to fight jihadist groups, is about three to three and a half thousand troops strong. So if the United Nations force in Mali is reinforced by an extra couple of thousand troops, particularly if these are specialist forces, forces assigned to do particular tasks in intelligence, in other words, protecting the wider UN operation against the jihadists. Convoy protection is one of the tasks cited. That could be really helpful. Now, you've mentioned the, the, the French troops in Mali again. In 2014, France launched the operation in the Sahel that you've, you've just mentioned to stem jihadist groups. But attacks continue in that northern desert area. You know, that attacks are blamed on the Tuareg and Islamist groups. Are there any chances of success? How is the Hello? French military operation or progressing here? Well, the French military operation is succeeding within the limits of what it can do uh, for the most part. Remember, this is a huge region. We're talking about thousands of kilometers in cases of some distance. So the eastern bit of the French military operation is in Chad, and it extends right across to the west of Mali and effectively right up to the border with Mauritania. That uh, and has support bases in Senegal and uh, in Cote d'Ivoire on the coast and so on. So 
This is an absolutely enormous region. Um, what the French are trying to do is provide, if you like, the high-tech element. So surveillance, uh, the possibility to deploy uh, combat helicopters if necessary, strategically across the region to try particularly to chase jihadist groups and to block their supply routes. They're doing what they can in that regard. Now, MINUSMA has been described as the world's deadliest UN peacekeeping mission, with 65 of its soldiers having died in active service. Is this a justifiable observation, though? Well, I'm cautious about over overstressing relative. What, what the figures do show is that this is not a situation where some French forces are up in the Sahara fighting jihadist groups and the UN soldiers are simply sitting peacefully doing protection duties and community support work and that kind of thing. The UN forces, even when they're engaged in quite routine activities in support of the peace process, are liable to be at risk at any time from attack from jihadists. So I I think it's a reasonable observation to make. I'm sure that a statistician or a military analyst might make some arguments over is this really the most dangerous operation or not. But in terms of the casualty rate, just statistically, it is said that MINUSMA is the most dangerous operation. That was Paul Milley, Associate Fellow in the Africa Programme at Chatham House Think Tank in the UK, speaking to Khusiko Dingake. Turkey has recalled its ambassador to Germany following the German parliament's decision to adopt a resolution recognizing the World War I massacre of Armenians by Ottoman forces as genocide. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan confirmed the decision, saying the vote was likely to affect relations between the two countries. Meanwhile, Erdogan blasted richer nations for not doing enough to shoulder the refugee burden which has hit poorer nations. Sarah Kimani reports. German media reported that only one member of parliament voted against and another abstained as the German parliament approved the resolution. Turkey has condemned the resolution. Tayyip Erdogan is the president of Turkey. Currently, we are on the process of calling back our ambassador for further consultations to Turkey. And when he comes back, we're going to sit down and we're going to discuss these issues which have the potential of creating significant tension, which have the potential of impacting the relations between Germany and Turkey. On the ongoing global migration crisis, Erdogan called for Europe to do more to help shoulder the refugee burden. Turkey currently hosts 3 million refugees from Syria and Iraq. It is also heavily involved in the reconstruction of Somalia. Kenya hosts at least half a million refugees, mainly from Somalia. It is working towards closing the refugee camps where they have been hosted for more than two decades. President Uhuru Kenyatta. And today we committed to exploring ways of working together towards post-conflict reconstruction in Somalia and to ensuring the safe and humane repatriation of refugees. Erdogan again. Kısıtlı ülkeler mülteci ve göç sorunuyla yüzleşirken zengin batılı ülkeler rahatlarından taviz vermek istemiyor. Unfortunately, the countries with limited resources available are rising up to the challenge and trying to tackle with the refugee problem, whereas the wealthy nations of the West are failing to do so.
Milyonlarca insanın dramına bunlar duyarsız kalıyorlar. They don't want to compromise on their comfort. That's why they are remaining indifferent towards the suffering of millions and millions of refugees. Bunun adı çifte standarttır, adaletsizliktir. This is a double standard issue and this is an issue of injustice. The German vote comes at a time when the European Union is relying on Turkey to help stop the influx of migrants into the region. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Kenya. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa Zorza Africa Amuka na Unai It's 8.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, rape and other sexual violations committed during war today represent a return to the slave trade of centuries ago, the Security Council heard on Thursday. Zainab Hawa Bangura, the special representative of the UN Secretary General on sexual violence in conflict, presented her latest report to council members. It lists nearly 50 groups worldwide that systematically commit these crimes. Diane Penn reports on the Security Council open debate. Ms. Bangura said political momentum over the past decade has resulted in more global action to curb wartime rape than the rest of human history combined. But she spoke of a new reality, that sexual violence today is not just a tactic of war, it is also a tactic of terrorism. Without exception... The first sign of rising violent extremism has been the restriction on women's rights. Extremists know that to populate a territory and control a population, you must first control the bodies of women. Sexual violence is not merely incidental, but integral to their ideology and strategic objectives. They are using sexual violence as a means of advancing political, military, and economic ends. The kidnapping of hundreds of schoolgirls by Boko Haram in northern Nigeria and the abduction of thousands of Yazidi women by ISIL, also known as Daesh, in Iraq, are two recent examples. Ms. Bangura met with Yazidi women who had been sold and traded as sexual slaves when she visited the Middle East last year. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon spoke of how these terrorist groups use trafficked women as rewards and to generate revenue. Daesh, Boko Haram and other extremist groups are using sexual violence as a means of attracting and retaining fighters and to generate revenue. It is estimated that the Yejidi community gave Daesh up to $45 million in ransom payments in 2014 alone. Civil society also participated in the Security Council debate, advocating for women and girls fleeing conflict who are at risk of exploitation while in refugee camps and when they leave these locations. Lisa Davis spoke on behalf of the NGO Working Group on Women, Peace and Security. These protection risks that women and girls face in humanitarian crises are compounded by the shame and stigma that accompany sexual violence. 
We urge donor states to fund comprehensive and non-discriminatory sexual and reproductive health care, including access to safe abortion services in humanitarian settings and in line with international humanitarian law. Ms. Bangura, the UN expert, said ultimately words, laws and UN resolutions will be meaningless if violations go unpunished. The war of conquest of extremist groups is being fought on and fought over the bodies of women and girls, generating millions of dollars in revenue. This is not just objectification, it is commodification. It is the revival of the slave trade in our own time and life. Zainab Hawa-Bangura, Special Representative of the UN Secretary-General on Sexual Violence in Conflict, speaking in the UN Security Council on Thursday. Diane Penn, United Nations. The lives of at least one million Syrian children are at risk from missed vaccinations because of the conflict there, the UN warned yesterday. In a joint appeal by the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, and the World Health Organization, the WHO, the agencies highlighted increasing attacks on health workers and facilities in Idlib, which have halted the jabs campaign in the city. UNICEF's Juliet Toma also told Daniel Johnson that some two million children are out of the agency's reach because cause of the more than five-year war. As a direct result of the violence in Syria, we are seeing about one million children being at a risk of missing out to be vaccinated. We have um, a vaccination campaign taking place right now in um, parts of Syria, and the violence and uh, uh, the, the bombardment uh, is jeopardizing these efforts, really, of the vaccinators. And uh, this is why we, we basically um, called yesterday for um, a significant reduction in the levels of violence in Syria so that the vac- vaccinators are allowed to do their work and vaccinate the kids. Okay, so let's go to one particular place, Idlib, where you're saying that you're seeing increasing violence, as you mentioned there. Correct. Uh, Idlib, in the past few days, really, has seen quite a lot of violence, including attacks on ambulances, but also health facilities. In one day alone, there were reports that at least 50 people were killed, including seven children. So it has been a very, very tough few days for the people of Idlib and this is precisely why the vaccination campaign in Idlib itself was put to a temporary halt because of the fear for the vaccinators themselves but also for the children and their families and this is a huge concern really because we are worried that other areas in Syria would be forced to do the same which means that we will have at least a million children who are not vaccinated against eight communicable diseases like polio, like measles, and that puts not only their lives at risk, but also risks the spread of diseases throughout the country. But never mind the risks of polio and all these communicable diseases, how about uh, food? I mean, do you have any detail on how many meals people are eating a day, not just in Idlib, but around the country? What's the general humanitarian status there, please? I mean, we have more than two million children throughout the country that continue to be out of reach. They live in areas that are either under siege or in areas where 
conflict has been the heaviest. So it is very difficult to answer your question, really, because we do not have regular access to families and children in areas where the conflict has been the heaviest. And this is precisely why we need more access. It's beyond the delivery of the really much, much needed humanitarian supplies, including food, but also medicine, vaccination and other essentials. So with that in mind, and bearing in mind the recent delivery to somewhere like Daraya, which contained very little food, as I understand it, would UNICEF support right. a call for airdrops? For us, the focus would be to get to children and deliver assistance in whichever means possible, really, on a regular basis, across line, from across the borders, whichever way, so that we're able to deliver assistance. And like I said, the, the Our job is quite huge because we continue to have more than 2 million children who are out of our reach. That was UNICEF's Julia Tumal speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. The ANC in South Africa's Gauteng province says it will pack to capacity the FNB Stadium for its provincial manifesto launch this Saturday. President Jacob Zuma and Provincial Chair Paul Mashatile are expected to address the crowd. The ANC suffered a 10% decrease in the last national elections and opposition parties are fighting to wrest control of Tswane, Johannesburg and the Ekuruleni metropolitan municipalities. Protests over the candidate list for the municipal government elections continued outside Lutuli House, the party's headquarters, with many representing Gauteng branches. But the ANC says it is ready for the battle to retain control. Matlati Gallens has more. Saturday will be a show of force. The ANC in Gauteng says filling the 94,000 capacity stadium is an easy matter. This after the ANC failed to fill the Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium in Port Elizabeth when it held its national manifesto launch in April. Deputy Chairperson David Makura says they are ready. We have always filled uh, various uh, stadiums, whether it's Ellis Park and Johannesburg simultaneously uh, or FNB Stadium literally on our own, Gauteng uh, province without uh, other provinces, not once, at least four times. It's nothing unusual to us. Uh, we, we, have, uh, we are very confident. We have the organizational strength. The party in the province is now in damage control mode after protests by some branches over the final list of candidates for the local government elections. The process has been marred by violence as members jostled to make it onto the list. And again, many that gathered outside the headquarters in Lutuli House threatened to boycott Saturday's event. Head of campaigns, Gwen Ramohopa. In terms of uh, those that are unhappy in Gauteng, we have started uh, yesterday. Uh, to give a feedback to those branches where their preferred candidates uh, have not been uh, endorsed for various reasons, including the reasons of uh, ensuring uh, the other criteria are met. Uh, So we are confident that, uh, yes, there will be unhappiness, but uh, we are managing uh, these with uh, our regional structures and branch leadership. The ANC in the economic hub of the country is facing an intense battle as opposition parties want to wrest control, especially of the three metros. The party needs to recover from the bruising national election that saw support decline to 53%. But it is ruling out any coalitions, saying it expects to be back in charge after August 3rd. It also believes it will win back Midval, the only DA-controlled municipality in the province. Ramokhopa says their track record speaks for itself. So we are not at all considering, and we don't uh, in the foreseeable future, 
uh, will consider that uh, situation of uh, possibility of uh, a coalition. Uh, uh, so maybe the, the answer to your question uh, would be that uh, uh, that's not uh, in our purview at all. Uh, we're confident. We've been working with our people and um, we are looking forward to a renewal of the mandate. The provincial leadership expects no negative reaction to President Jacob Zuma. This is despite calls by some of the branches and veteran leaders in the province that he steps down following the damning constitutional court judgment against him. Makura says he expects members to treat him with respect. In our province, we have had many activities and every one of them organized by the provincial leadership in which we are in charge. We we certain that uh, ANC members uh, will always uh, treat the leadership of the ANC with respect. And I, I have no doubt, I've got no equivocation about that. This is an ANC rally. It's not a public, it's not a, a soccer match, a, an activity to which we don't know who's coming there. And so these are ANC members, and they, uh, ANC members understand everything organized by the ANC. There's a particular expectation around uh, our conduct uh, that was David Makura, chairman of the ANC in South Africa's Gauteng province, ending that report by Masati Gallens. Our headlines up next with Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, a terror attack carried out by militants in the Somali capital of Mogadishu has been described as a despicable act by the UN Special Envoy for the country. The bodies of at least 85 people who drowned trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea found washed up on beaches near the Libyan city of Zuwara, a red, cre- a red crescent official has said. And finally, South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission hails its online registration system for candidates as a success despite some glitches. I'll have details at 9 o'clock. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Jalani. The Independent Electoral Commission of South Africa, IEC, has hailed its online registration system for candidates as a success despite some glitches. The online registration was a first for the continent as registration for parties and independent candidates contesting the municipal elections drew to an end yesterday. However, the Electoral Commission is now facing a court challenge from a court challenge from Land First, Black First, who didn't get the opportunity to register. Tseboi Kaneng has more. Political parties were busy in the last minute to vet and finalize their municipal election candidate lists. The IEC says more than 260 parties have registered so far. The Western Cape and the Eastern Cape have the most registered parties. Scores of people continue to protest outside the ANC headquarters in downtown Johannesburg, unhappy with the final list. 
The party was still putting final touches on their list late afternoon. Deputy Secretary General Jesse Duarte. Every single candidate has to sign a release form to say I am going to stand. Um, so that's what we're busy doing right now, is to get that process off the ground before we said 4 o'clock this afternoon, uh, so that we have an hour or so to get the electronic uh, uh, stuff moving and, uh, you know, th- uh, hopefully the cloud won't uh, hold us up or whatever, but uh, today is that day. DA leader Musi Maimani says his party has managed to beat the deadline for registration of candidates. We are in a drive to make sure the best candidates are available for government and therefore we've interrogated the systems, we've made sure that we get all the right people coming on board and build. So I'm very confident uh, we've been finalizing the process, it will be submitted uh, today. Firstly, it's the largest uh, pool of candidates we've ever put together. It will be the first time the DA will be able to put together candidates in every ward in South Africa. We're the only party that can match the ANC. And uh, we've wanted to to have chosen the best candidates. They are diverse. They they are drawn from all communities. The IEC has recorded the highest number of registered independent candidates. The electoral body says this augurs well for the strengthening of democracy. Victor Tuli is an independent candidate from Bronconsprate. My uh, decision to uh, be an independent person uh, on, on contest uh, under independent is that I, I respected the community. The community told me, the community uh, requested, the community outcry, I listened to that. Mine is to see uh, the development within the community, sustainability. At the moment, we're having crisis with electricity issues and water. The Congress of the People has announced that it will not be contesting all municipal wards across the country. However, the party spokesperson, Dennis Bloom, says they will keep a close eye on the IEC officials to monitor if they are impartial and competent enough to oversee the electoral process. We are still very critical uh, of the IEC. What happened in Tlokwe opened our eyes to say that we must not leave any stone unturned because we can't rely and, and trust the IEC. We have seen that people from, from elsewhere, uh, from other provinces, have voted in Tlokwe. So we will be very vigilant on the 3rd of, uh, of uh, August. We are not taking anything for chance. We will look like hawks uh, over uh, the tables and uh, the voting stations. Meanwhile, the Black First Land First Civic Organization has launched an urgent court application to force the Independent Electoral Commission to register it for the August 3rd local government elections. The electoral body denied the organization's permission to register after missing a deadline for the submission of application forms. The BLF only submitted its registration application last week, Friday, four days after the issuing of a proclamation for the staging of the local government polls. BLF leader Andy Lemkitama explains the reason for their court action. We're challenging the decision of the IEC to exclude BLF, Black First Land First, from participating in these elections. We believe we've got a very strong case. We believe that the judge will listen to what we've got to say and will make a decision that we participate. We have been treated very badly by the Independent Electoral uh, Commission. For two weeks they have not communicated with us, despite us 
uh, inquiring. No, we should not be therefore prejudiced by an administrative requirement against a fundamental right to participate. This is equal to banning our revolutionary movement from giving our people another option. The IEC has stood by its decision not to register the BLF. The electoral body had in the meantime expressed gratitude for the positive response displayed by political parties and independent candidates during the process leading up to the deadline for the registration. IEC's Deputy CEO, Saima Mabolo. This is a very it's a critical moment in, in the preparation for election because from here we'll be in a position to determine uh, the ballot papers. As you know, each ward will, be, will have a different uh, ballot configuration. So it means then we will have to start with that huge logistical undertaking of printing the ballot papers, ensuring that the right uh, ballot configuration are sent in right quantities uh, to the right municipalities ahead of the 3rd of August. That report by Tsepo Ikaneng. Zimbabwe is lobbying its neighbours to speak with one voice in order to retain the right to trade in ivory and high-value animal hides ahead of the CITES meeting in September. Frantic lobbying by powerful nations ahead of the convention could see an end to the centuries-old culture of hunting of elephant and lion in southern African countries and a trade ban on these animals' products. CITES is an agreement between 182 governments. It aims to ensure that the international trade in animals and plants does not threaten their survival. Shingai Nyoka has more from Harare. Behind the walls of a high-security compound, millions of dollars worth of elephant tusks and rhino horns are gathering dust. Today, Zimbabwe is opening the doors of this warehouse to the world to try to lobby governments against pushing for a total ban on trade. It's been able to sell limited elephant ivory to dealers for trinkets and jewelry. It wants to be able to sell its 93 tons of stockpile on the open market. The CITES conference to discuss the proposals is just months away. Zimpark's Director General, Ed Sanchizia. We hope it is going to be a fair process in that uh, for as long as there is no evidence to say your current quota utilization or your current quotas have been having negative impacts on the survival of these populations in the world. Then there shouldn't be any issues. But again, given the background in which these topics are going to be discussed, a lot of it will not be science-based. It will be based on emotions. It will be based on politics. If countries like Kenya and those in Central and West Africa have their way, the stockpiles would go up in smoke. Last month, Kenya destroyed 106 tons of elephant and rhino horns. It's leading the lobby to upgrade elephants and lions to the most endangered species list. This would end SADC's ability to trade in these products and force stockpiles to be destroyed. Zimbabwe says burning its tusks is not an option. Wildlife Minister Opam Chinguri Kashiri. The 10-year the moratorium, which was imposed on us not to sell, will be able to, uh, to, to, to be relaxed. Then we use that same money for our conservation programs and also empowering our own communities. They must see a value. 
but Africa's voice is divided because of their different experiences. The elephant populations in Central, East and West Africa have declined by 60% according to CITES, while SADC's numbers have grown by 12% as a result of good wildlife management policies. But Zimbabwe believes its 83,000 elephants and 850 lions are unsustainable and are causing chaos to its ecosystems. Those people who suffer as a result of living with these wild animals who are killed, who lose their livestock, which is the source of livelihoods, who lose their crops. And so what communities expect uh, from suffering with these animals is that they must see a value. They must see us handing, continual handing, because there is more money in handing. And we are saying we do it in a sustainable way, which is agreed upon between CITES and Zimbabwe. Several SADC countries say there's no evidence to show that bans protect wildlife. They cite the 40-year-old CITES ban on the trade in rhino products. This, as SADC says, that member states are the best protectors and decision makers for their own wildlife. I'm Shingai Nyokai in Harare. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Solar energy is lighting the pathway to a better future for rural youth and women in West Africa. As according to an engineer from Burkina Faso who attended a recent UN conference in Turkey devoted to the world's least developed countries. The young people are being trained to install and maintain solar panels, water heaters and other items through a project called Mama Light for Sustainable Energy. Princess Abze Jijma Founder of Abze Solar, which produces the Mamalite line of products, is behind the initiative. Princess Abze spoke to Reem Abaza, who began by asking her if there was a conflict between the need for companies to be profitable as well as socially responsible. I think it's not a conflict. At the end of the day, from the private sector perspective that I'm part of, is we are happy to bring goods, but in a good manner, to our and users, which is our clients. Our clients are happy when they know uh, that we treat very good our employees and also that the raw material where they're coming from, that we don't damage Mother Nature, is good for us. Because if we damage everything, there is no client, and it's not resilience. It's about resilience as well. More and more uh, companies are aware about that. In the past, maybe they were not aware about it, but even the demand, uh, the customers, urging the, the corporates also to go in that way, to be more sustainable. Yeah. Talk to us about your project to provide the training opportunities in the African continent. I'm an engineer by profession and electricity specialized in solar, and it's using uh, energy as a catalyst to uh, upgrade the youth because it's also a business opportunity for them. 
it would be also um, the way to bring access to energy to most of the people and grow the economy. As you know, without energy, you can't grow your economy. So it's a business opportunity also for our youth. They don't need to, uh, to go uh, away. My, my concept is that we're sharing the work with our brothers and sisters who are in the countryside train them and then language because our training also is a local language and this is important that's what's make the difference with the initiative mama light for sustainable energy which is the bottom-up approach community-based owned by women drive by women we're doing multifunctional platforms and this is really owned by the women and we have a program called mamas for mamas then the, 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 the women, they are trained and they train others. Which countries are you uh, implementing these projects? We are in, uh, in West Africa for the moment. We have commitment in the Sendai framework to have a training of trainers of 5,000 per country in Africa. Why are you focusing on women specifically? What does it do for the whole society and um, uh, the growth and development? I'm not focusing on women only, but uh, I mean my, my work is uh, technical, but it's to show that technical also can be attractive for women. Because in our segment, you don't have that much women. Also, I can be a role model like, uh, maybe I become a, a goodwill ambassador on vocational Why training. Not? Why not? For UNESCO, because we need role models of women who's under techniques that to show also that uh, young girls can choose science also and that in the countryside even if you don't speak international language we can bring the knowledge in your language that is not a barrier that's what I'm doing and I can tell you if you come you see women who are able to repair they make their reports and they write in More and Bamba and Mali they write everything in Bamanakanto so we adapt it Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, réveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil est levé. Weya, wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, du melang, san bonani. Africa, mulishani, pulibwanji. Africa, eh, yomi, kilon shele. Africa, ndinkim, kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabi Sulahogo. Economists predict that there is a possibility that South Africa could get a reprieve from S&P to fulfill the promises made by Finance Minister Pravin Gordon on stabilizing the economy. S&P is due to announce the country's rating on Friday, which is one level above junk status. Economist Chris Gilmore. We may get a bit of breathing, breathing space from S&P in the same way as we got from Moody's a few weeks ago. Uh, S&P may say, well, wait for six months until December, 
see what happens, see if we can get many of these good intentions that you've expressed to us uh, actually turning into something tangible. Praveen Gordhan is trying to persuade the ratings agencies that South Africa has got a good story, and in many ways it actually has got a good story. Meanwhile, a trade and industry minister, Rob Davies, says the government has put up a strong case to hold off a downgrade with ratings agency officials. What's on everybody's mind at the moment is what is SNP going to say later today? And we know that due to release their statement after market close today, so that's probably a good thing because it's going to result in less volatility on the market. I think South Africa's economy is basically coming to a grinding halt. You know, we're growing at uh, just above zero percent. So, you know, we're escaping a recession by the skin of our teeth. So many economists are saying that if there is going to be a downgrade, that in fact will push us into recession territories. Lesotho's Labour Ministry says it's concerned about the impact of South Africa's low economic growth. Many Basotho nationals depend on domestic farming and mining jobs in South Africa to survive. The Basotho have now been afforded the opportunity to apply for work permits. Lesotho's Minister of Labour and Employment, Advocate Tulo Mahlaki, was speaking on the sidelines of the International Labour Conference in Geneva, Switzerland. Very much concerned. In fact, we have seen, it has been said that the unemployment rate in South Africa is about 8.3 million. Now, if you have the absence of job opportunities in South Africa, which have to cater for 8.3 million, and we are hardly 2 million, then it means the extent to which that percentage is affecting the job opportunities in South Africa will definitely affect the intake or the employment of our people in Soto because the economies are intertwined. We, we depend on what is being done in South Africa. Malawi is one of four Southern African development community countries that will benefit from $122 million funds meant to deal with the tuberculosis. Other countries are Lesotho, Mozambique and Zambia. Out of these funds, the World Bank has given Malawi $17 million for Lilongwe tuberculosis intervention. George Mohango reports. With the grant, Malawi and other named countries think the funds will support a paradigm shift in how the Sadiq region prevents and treats TB. This will be done by introducing a multi-sectoral plan for regionally coordinated actions by ministries of health. Media and e-commerce group Naspers says it has invested 60 million U.S. dollars in U.S. education technology firm Udemy. San Francisco-based Udemy has expanded overseas in the past year, and Naspers says it offers more than 40,000 courses available in 80 different languages. Naspers has transformed itself from an apartheid-era publisher into a 60 billion U.S. dollars internet powerhouse by focusing on e-commerce in emerging markets. The U.S. dollar trades at 15.57 to the South African rand, 11.02 Botswana Pula, at 10.44 in Zambia, 6.9 British pound, 8.9 euro. Platinum is trading at 9.59 dollars, gold at 1,201 dollars an ounce. Brand crude oil, 4.9 dollars, 9.7 cents a barrel. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African renaissance. Up next is Fila Lungwati with a sport update.
First up in our sports update this hour, it's football news. South African Minister of Sports and Recreation, Figile Mbalula, is one of the politicians who came to pay their last respect to the men who contributed immensely to South African football. Former Bafana Bafana coach Ted Dumitri was given a perfect send-off at his memorial service at the Ellis Park Arena in Johannesburg on Thursday. Balula says they have lost a great servant of football in the country. Well, uh, we have lost a great legend of football in Ted Dumitri that is well recorded and well written. He has written his own life story while he was still alive. And uh, we will not forget. And uh, he has served us our country and football with diligence and we are proud of him and uh, like I said the annals of history will not you know uh, forget what he did history will reward him handsomely for what he has done and I think uh, it's up to us to look at individuals with exceptional contribution like him and continue to celebrate their lives and that is what is important and news making the rounds in the South African football circles is that former Nigeria Super Eagles coach Stephen Keshi is the new Orlando Paris coach. This is still to be confirmed by both parties as the contract of the current coach Eric Tingler ends at the end of this month. There has been rife speculation in recent months that Pirates will part ways with Tinkler due to a barren season which saw the Soweto Giants finishing 7th on the log under Tingler. And Pirates also failed to win the Kev Confederations Cup and the recent Netbank Cup. The former Bafana Bafana player is also linked with a coaching post at Vitoria Setubal in Portugal, the team that he played for between 2006 and 2008. On to athletics, Ethiopia's Almaz Ayana ran the second fastest women's 5,000 meters in history as she missed out on the world record by just over a second at the Rome Diamond League on Thursday night. The world champion finished more than 20 seconds ahead of Messi Cherono of Kenya in 14.12 but failed to break the 14 minutes 11.515 set by compatriot Tironesh Dibaba eight years ago. World champion Wade van Niekerk of South Africa won the men's 400 in 44.19 seconds, while compatriot Castasimena equaled her world-leading time this year in the 800 with a comfortable victory of 1 minute, 56.64. In tennis news, defending champion Serena Williams survived the fright as she labored into the semifinals of the French Open with a 5-7-6-4-6-1 victory against cousin Yulia Puniteva on Thursday. The world number one made a mess of numerous routine shots as the opponent took the opening set by having made only one unforced error. Yeah, I just was not playing my, my best and I kept missing and, you know, just misfiring. And I just honestly, at one point, I didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I don't know, I just was, I guess I was not the most positive, but... <coughs> Um, mentally, but I just, obviously, I didn't want to stop. The momentum had swung Williams' way, and the American crushed Putinzeva in the decider, ripping it up on her fourth match point with an unretainable serve. Williams will take on Dutch woman Kiki Bettens today for a place in the Saturday's final. The pair played each other at the 2015 US Open, a game which Williams won in straight sets. 
Yeah, of course. Um, I, I remember being just really tough and, you know, given a good, tough performance. And I was happy to get through that match. And uh, just, you know, every match counts and every match, you know, leads to a new one. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine today, concerns over recent terror attacks against peacekeepers in Mali. Turkey's President Recep Erdogan kicks off his state visit to Kenya. And the UN envoy speaks out on sexual violence during conflict. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, and Jane Rabotata, technical producer Sithin Dovu, and the rest of the team, Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Wanda Baloi with a song titled Blackstone. Beautiful brown, bronzed black stone. Yes, I am a rolling black stone. Now, in my trail, I gather histories and plant seeds and minds, sprout roots of black female stories. Yes, I am a black stone. Shining with verse and rhythm, I bless your mind and make you listen with your body till you dance to the drum beats of my words. Yes, I am a black stone. From a volcano oozing of black consciousness Erupting in your soul like mini orgasms Tickling your feet, making you shout Mo fire! As I indeed bless your mind Yes, I spit fire Burn ears, produce more smiles than a Colgate ad Is when hell my flow, my cup runneth over Spills out as I write the score For a new black female song Yes, I am a black stone Call from oceans of thoughts from poets Words beating through a generation of stereotypes High-heeled shoes, long weaves The latest perfume from Tommy Hilfiger That my sisters are battling the African pride Just to smile like a hundred dollar bottle of the American dream For yes, I am a black stone From Namibia to South Africa, I am a black stone. More nurturing than a new mother's milk and an old woman's wisdom. And I will grow and climax into a black goddess. 
feet touching the ground to stay connected to the essence of a black woman. Yes, I am a black stone. I am indeed blacker than you, sister. And it's not even about consciousness. I just have more melanin in my complexion. Yes, I am a black stone, a rolling black stone. And they say that a rolling stone gathers no moss. But my womb holds uncertain futures soon to be released when I am wise enough to be a mother. Yes, I am a black stone. My claim to beauty is more breathtaking than a black sun rising in the west. And yes, I bring confusion, bring blackness, but remember there has always been, always will be blackness before light pierces through. And yes, I am a black stone. More inspired than who 